0: Hello and welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast, where we talk about tennis by connecting the present of the sport with its storied past. Be it the nuanced unpacking of the individual stories, long-form interviews, or the detailed tour-level analysis, we have you covered.
1: Stefan Edberg came into the 1990 US Open as a newly crowned World number 1 and having one of the best summers of his pro career. His last loss was to Boris Becker in the semifinals of Queens. So basically, he won four tournaments heading into the Open. However, his stay in New York did not last long, long as he lost to uh, the late Sasha Volkov in straight sets in the first round, making only the sixth time in the tournament's history that a top seed player failed to win this first match. I'm going to read a quote from Edberg's post-match press conference from that year from the New York Times. Quote, I didn't feel good, didn't feel comfortable, and I was struggling to find my game. To find the way I usually play, I'm not 100% comfortable here, and I don't think think I ever will be. I told myself this year that I wouldn't let things bother me, but it's over now. What transpired between Edberg and New York the following two years is stuff of legends. Everybody knows he wins the 91 and 92 editions of the championship, and this is podcast worthy. This is your host, Saqib Ali. I've set this uh, stage for this conversation, and I'm joined by two regular guests, uh, Hall of Famer Steve, Steve Flink. And historian Richard Evans, join me in this show as we look back at the Edberg championship runs. Welcome to the show, gentlemen.
0: Hello, good to be with you. Yes, yeah, akib nice to be here. Looking forward to the discussion.
1: Yeah, Steve, you and I spoke about Goran Ivanišević. Now I think this is even a more rich conversation in terms of Edberg's affair with the New York City. So I'll give you the microphone, Steve. Uh, I was in far in India reading this stuff in newspapers. Edberg losing to Volkov that year, uh, after having you know become a number one for the first time, and before that in 1989 he lost to an aging Jimmy Connors, six three six two six one, and I read somewhere Connors even forfeited a game in that match and still beat Edberg pretty handily. What do you remember of those early years? Why was Edberg not at his best at the Open?
0: Uh, some of it is inexplicable. He had been in the semifinals in '86 and '87, more his standard. And I, at that time, I thought it's, it's just a matter of time. Then he had a match against Quickstein where he was footfalled about twenty five times and lost the match in five. And and uh, as Richard remembers, Stefan had this attitude that he wanted to get the net, to the net as swiftly as he possibly could, and therefore it was worth it to him to get called for footfalls because. On, on the points that he did not, he was just that extra inch closer to the net. He was very stubborn about it. But in any case, it's, things went south after 86 and 87. And you just alluded to the two worst moments in 89 and 90. I, I didn't understand it. And it was starting to get in his head. And that was that was a shame because there was no reason he shouldn't have been playing his best on the hard courts. So I was so happy that he finally rectified it in, in 91 and 92.
1: A lot of Swedes, I think, probably, or a lot of Eastern Europeans as well, had this uh, equation with the New York City. So, before we get into Edberg's two championship runs, uh, Richard, for a younger listener, Stefan Edberg is Roger Federer's coach. I mean, that's how times move, right? So, paint a picture of what this man was about, and also bring in his equation with his long-term coach, Tony Pickard. I think they stayed together for more than what fifteen years. So, throw some light on that relationship.
2: Yes, it was uh, one of the longest uh, and best uh, player-coach relationships that any of us have known. Um, And uh, Stefan was so lucky to run into Tony Pickard, who was uh, an interesting character. I knew him when he was on the fringes of the British Davis Cup team. He was never really good enough to be a regular. He certainly didn't win Wimbledon, but he walked around the place as if he had. He was cocky. He was funny. He was uh, always someone who was uh, looking on the bright side of life and a little bit pugnacious. And he was everything in that respect that Stefan was not. And that is what he gave Stefan. They they met by chance, and uh, I don't know quite why, but they decided to work together. Uh, Tony offered to, to coach Stefan, and he had nothing to do with changing Stefan's stroke play. All that was there. What wasn't there was a champion's demeanour because here the the, the chin was on the chest and this beautiful blonde Swedish boy of 18 walked around as if life was a bit of a problem. And the first things that Tony said to him was get your chin up, get your head back, get your shoulders back. Walk as if you're a champion, look like a champion and people will believe you're a champion. And it completely changed Stefan. He he looked like a different person. And when he walked on court, uh, his opponent saw a, a different human being, quite apart from the fact that uh, he was going to have a lot of trouble with the servant volley, where the backhand volley, one of the great shots in tennis, and uh, the shots that won Stefan all his titles. But it was, it was amazing, A, that they found each other, And B, became friends. I mean, they became genuine friends. They used to go out to dinner every night. And Stefan was intelligent enough to to, um, put up with Tony, if you like, because Tony Tony was, you know, not the easiest guy. He was a nice guy. I, I haven't seen him for a long time, but we've spent a lot of fun times together. But he saw exactly what Stefan needed and was able to impart the knowledge with the strength and the belief that Stefan took on board.
1: So this is more like a, again, a historical reference point here as well. A lot of Europeans, like I said, struggled with the New York weather. Uh, Borg, you know, of course, I don't know if he struggled, but he reached four finals. Uh, it took Lendl a while before he started winning. Belander won his sole US Open. So question for both of you, Richard, you can go first. What is it about New York City that bothered like some of uh, the Europeans who were quite successful at Wimbledon and other you know other places in the world even in America but maybe just not in New York it's noisy <laughs>
2: <laughs> you need earplugs and uh, there's, there's this sort of New York sense of humor which uh, you know you either understand or you don't and if you don't it can be really annoying and the city is is bustling noisy Uh, in some respects, uh, dirty, you've got to have a mentality to understand New York and live in it. I I, I went to New York and lived in New York from 65 to 69. And uh, I I had some great times. I met some great people, uh, Steve Flink being one of them. (laughs) But um, it really wasn't my type of city. And it certainly wasn't Stefan's. Because he's even quieter personality than me. He came from a small town in Sweden. I mean, Stockholm isn't noisy like uh, New York, but you know, when you get down to the smaller cities, it is very quiet, and uh, it's not easy for people to get into the rhythm of New York and to be able to handle it. And Stefan couldn't.
1: Steve, your view on uh, this—you've
2: covered.
0: I think you'd sum that up beautifully, and and. uh as we as we were reflecting on, as I was thinking about it earlier, just I still don't, I've, I've never been able to understand why if you get to a couple of semifinals in 86 and 87, what, what went wrong, why things went south after that, but they did. And I think as the years went by, here was Edward Goodwin won in Australia in 85 and 87. He won his first Wimbledon in 88, won it again in 90. So he, he, he'd done so well in the other majors, he'd even been in the French final in 89, losing to Chang and, and a quick, Anecdote about that one, Richard. But I saw Tony Pickard before the day before Edberg played Chang in the final, and I said, "So, what do you think about Michael?" It's some run and another because I was doing a story about Michael for World Tennis, and Pick and Tony said to me, "We don't really know about this kid yet. It'll take us at least another year to know." But for Stefan, this is just another day in the office. Well, of course. (laughs) that proves your point about the pugnacity or some of the other adjectives. You, I didn't think he was totally taking Michael for granted, but maybe he was underestimating him a bit and, and Stefan lost in five to Michael in that French final. But in any case, my point being, Saqib, that he had a good record, all the other majors. He dealt with difficult circumstances, noisy crowds in Paris. And Melbourne may be the most relaxed. Wimbledon, tremendous pressure, despite the dignity and elegance of the place. So why wouldn't he be able to... He, it got in his head, and but that certainly changed in 91 and 92. So he more than made amends because he ultimately won his two there, just like he won his two in Melbourne and his two at Wimbledon. So it all, it all yeah. evened out nicely for him.
1: And, you know, Edberg is a subject here, but uh, I think I should pause on that and also recognize the fact I tried hosting you both a couple of years ago. We had some technical issues, but you both have been in these media rooms for a long time. Do you remember, uh, Steve, when you first met Richard? I think that should also be called out in this kind of a podcast. Do you have first memory of how Robert, you...
0: Great, great memory, but it wasn't in a press... It was actually at a tournament. It was at the Masters. Richard Woners played in Paris. It Was it Coubertin they called yeah, that?
2: Yeah, Stutt Coubertin. So yeah. yeah.
0: And I was friendly at the time. I knew Clark Gravner, one of the American players, and I was supposed to go to the airport with Clark Gravner and Cliff Ritchie and get a flight to London where my father lived at the time uh, that evening and I was looking forward to sitting with them on the plane. Suddenly realized my passport was missing. So Clark Clark brought me over to Richard Saqib and, and introduced me He said this is a friend of mine, Steve Flank and he's lost his passport what should he do? And you said Richard if Sarge Schreiber was still here he'd have you out of here in five minutes but the guy who's in there now you're going to be in big trouble. So That's, you were, that was true. my inter- were very honest sympathetic but you were telling me the lay of the land and that was where we met and and then uh by the next year richard and i were crossing paths in press rooms i was working behind the scenes with bud collins and i'd see richard at wimbledon and the u.s open especially that year in the marquee many times so uh that's how far back we go sakib and then i have many press room memories in the years that followed
2: i think absolutely i remember all that um I think when we're making a break here, but something that is very pertinent to, to to the subject of how atmosphere and background can affect a player and the performance. Because there's another prime example um, of Miloslav Macias and the Lipton, as it was then, when we were being billeted downtown Miami in a hotel that the concierge greeted you by saying, don't leave, don't walk around, it's a no-go area. And it it was. I mean, you. it was an entertainment complex, and you got on the elevator, and you were lucky to get upstairs without a knife in your back. It was not a very pleasant place to be. And the players sort of, some of them enjoyed it, some of them didn't. But Miloslav Makhish said, no, thank you very much. And he found himself a little hotel, which I think has probably vanished now, on the beach on Key Biscayne. And he used to take strolls at night looking at the sunset, and he was so relaxed and so happy, he won the tournament. (laughs) And (laughs) if he'd stayed downtown, he would not have won the tournament. And it's sort of the same thing that we're talking about. So Stefan isn't the only example of this.
0: Very true. Very true.
1: Uh, Key Biscayne is indeed, I mean, that's the only thing I have in common with both of you, that I've also been to Key Biscayne, but uh, <laughs> let, let's let's move past uh, this and go back to Edberg. So mm. Steve, in 91, unlike 90, he's world number two now. He's coming to the open uh, unlike 90. Now he's won Queens, but that's the last time he's won on tour. He lost a semifinal at Wimbledon to Shtick, and then uh, he really hasn't had a good summer, like the year before when he won Cincinnati. He's won few matches in LA, few matches in uh, Cincinnati. And he lost at the Long Island, what is it? Hamlet Cup, it used to be called? Yes. Yep. yes. Goran Ivanevsevic. So what do you remember of those times? I'm sure this was in your backyard. You went to those tournaments. Uh, this was week before the Open. A lot of top players used that. Lindell used to play that quite often. And uh, talk about uh, the prep to 91. What do you remember? And him losing to the final... Uh, in the final to Lendl.
0: Yeah. Well, listen, I I, I think, I think, are we talking about 90? We want to talk about the 91 Open now, right?
1: No, the, yeah, 91 Open, but uh, in the week before the Open in Long Island, yeah. he loses oh, yeah. to Lendl. I don't yeah. think
0: he, was, I, I, you're right. The results, it was not a good run of results. He Also, the sneak match was frustrating because he won the first set and then lost three tiebreakers. Never lost his serve in the match, so that was frustrating him. Having been in three Wimbledon finals in a row, having beaten Boris in two of the three, so maybe in a way the pressure—it was a different kind of incentive he had after all these good Wimbledons. He comes to New York, and, and also a little less expected of him, strangely, given the the the, the run that he'd had. And I, I just—I still remember thinking he was very dangerous and over and overdue. And sure enough. You know, he did lose a set to, of all people, Brian Shelton, Ben Shelton's <laughs> yes. father, in the first round, and one set to Jim Grab, better known as a doubles player. Uh, but otherwise, he was moving through that draw very comfortably and then eventually came up against Lendl in the semis and blitzed him. And then he gets into the final, and they beat Lendl in straight, which was a big confidence booster, because Lendl, of course, had been in eight straight finals from 82 through 89, and the Open had become his... His uh, favorite of the majors in many ways and uh edberg plays courier in the final now interesting enough in the years that followed you know jim beat stefan in the 92 93 both the finals in the australian open and in wimbledon in 93 he, he was real trouble for stefan by that stage but in 91 Edbert played the single best Match, I think, of his career. To beat Courier 6-2, 6-4, Never lost his serve. Never even had a break point against him. It was an immaculate display. I see Richard nodding at me as I'm saying this because any of us who were there could never forget that that breathtaking display that he put on. And I remember sitting there thinking, I don't want this to end. As he was pulling away in the third set and winning at 6 love. I didn't want to have one blemish. <laughs> I sometimes find myself doing that, Richard. If somebody's in the zone and playing yeah. that way. Well. I don't yeah. want it spoiled by suddenly at four love, he has a three game, loses three games sure. in a row through carelessness or tension or whatever it might be. And Stefan just never let up. And and, and Courier said he, uh, he'd never had anybody play that well against him. He was amazed by the level that Stefan found. So boy, once he turned the corner and that. So that was a really first rate tournament for Edberg. What do you remember about it, Richard?
2: Well, I mean, it, it, it's what we're talking about. He he was like a man let out of jail because he wasn't staying in Manhattan. <laughs> this uh, this again, t- Tony stepped in and said, you know, we've got to get rid of uh, this phobia you have about this noisy city. And he told me he said, not only did I find him a hotel in a quiet place somewhere, maybe you know where I, I don't, somewhere out on Long Island. But we spent as little time as possible on site because he wasn't comfortable on site either. So we went. We booked our practice court. We went. We went to the locker room, changed, practice, go, and got out of there in as short a space of time as possible. So Stefan wasn't really playing in New York. He was playing on this center court, which is fine. He could handle that. But the whole uh, razzmatazz of New York City and flushing meadow didn't impact him because Tony Picard had separated him from it.
0: I I, I want to add, Richards, that that that's fascinating and I hadn't thought of it from that perspective. But the other thing, Saqib, was that Jimmy Connors stole the attention at that tournament by yeah. at 39, reaching the semifinals so unexpectedly and Getting the crowd so revved up in match after match, starting from two sets to love and love three down against Patrick McEnroe, all the way to the penultimate round where Courier beats him, and 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 people later said it was Jimmy Connors' tournament, but Stefan Richard didn't mind that at all. He just uh, went up. Uh, it was perfect for him because nobody was talking much to him or what his thoughts were. It was the focus was almost entirely on Jimmy Connors. So that was another thing that I think made Stefan relax, Richard.
1: And also and the no, big crowd favorites, right? Andre Agassi losing to Christine in round one. Yeah. And world number one, Boris Becker losing again to, I think, Paul Harhouse in round yeah. three. And yes. he had yes. a strained thigh muscle. Yeah. And so I think that kind of paved the way, like you said, Steve, for Edberg because – and Sampras was a defending champion. Sampras yeah. lost and in the quarters? Sampras
0: lost to Courier. So Courier in the all, quarters. Yeah, so there were a lot of good results from – but on the other hand, he still had to go through Lendl and, and Courier at the end, which wasn't easy. But by then – he was peaking and, and he was capable of beating anybody. And what what a great, what a terrific way to win his first title in New York like that. So, so convincingly. So Absolutely. Was, yeah, go, so go ahead.
1: No, I was going to ask you both and Richard, you can go first. How was it covering, covering Stefan from press room to press room in the world? Was he a man who would give you a lot of quotes? Unlike Borg, I think he was still media friendly. Borg was more shy, but how was it writing a story on Edberg? How, quote, dependent were you guys and what did he give you in return?
2: Well, he was, um, you know, he wasn't a big extrovert, um, but he had had a funny sense of humor. Um, One of the funniest things, um, you had to know Stefan really well to understand that Swedish sense of humor. We were on a flight uh, leaving Tokyo, um, uh, heading for L.A., and we stopped in Anchorage. The plane stopped in Anchorage. And Edberg was on my flight, and uh, his longtime doubles partner, Anders Yarid, took a, a later flight, which was following us across the Pacific. And both planes were due to stop uh, in Anchorage. And so Stefan decided that he was going to get a bit of cardboard and put Anders Yarid on it like chauffeurs do when they are meeting people getting off flights <laughs> and went to the gate. <laughs> and there he was with an absolute straight face, holding up his little bit of cardboard with Anders Yarrit on it. <laughs> and Anders fell about when he got off the plane and saw his doubles partner there. But that, that was Stefan Edberg's humor. Um, it, it was understated and slightly quirky, but uh, as far as press conference, he was always very amenable. He was always very nice. He, he didn't create waves. So we didn't get a lot of headlines out of what he was going to say, but he was honest and um, uh, he was just nice to be around.
1: Steve, same question to you. Yeah. And also the American aspect, you know, like I said in a previous podcast uh, a few years ago when we did uh, ESPN, I think someone said that Beyond Borg. Patrick Rafter and Boris Becker were the three non-American male players before the big three that American crowds warmed up to. So where would Edberg fall in this landscape? Was he a lovable character? Did he become popular? What's your recollection of the Stefan years? The well, beginning? I think he
0: was. He. I think he was highly respected, and I think Richard described him well. He was low-key, straightforward. He'd answer those questions. He was perfectly good in the press conference, and he was as expansive as he. Could be, uh, but no, was he? I would say there was probably a bit more fascination. You mentioned those other players. When you think of Edbert, I think of Becker. Becker somehow captured the public imagination a little bit more because of his personality and his magnetism and sure. how he conducted himself on the court. So Edbert didn't seek the attention. In some ways it reminded me of Pete Sampras, you know, and neither one really wanted that. They, they didn't care about this, that they wanted to go out and they wanted to win. And I I, so was he really sought after by a lot of the American journalists, not necessarily, but they couldn't ignore him with his achievements either. So I think I I think he sort of fell into the right part of the spectrum from his perspective in the sense of he he wasn't going to get inundated with requests. But but people did want to know what he was thinking, you know, given that he was one of the best players in the world for a couple of years, he, he was the best.
2: He uh, Of all the champions I've known, um, and he was a big champion and won a lot, he had the smallest ego. Um, I mean, he never tried to play the big guy. He used to take the London Underground when he lived in London. And there was a little uh, anecdote. Um, I went to a Davis Cup final, I think it was against Germany, after he'd retired. He'd re- been retired about three years, and Jonas Bjorkman was the new Swedish star. He was uh, a semi-finalist at uh, Wimbledon, I think, and, of course, a great doubles player, and he was playing number one on the Swedish Davis Cup team. And it was in Gothenburg, and we were leaving the stadium, and it was dark, and there was snow everywhere, and there was this young man in his teens with his little Instamatic camera, and he was desperate to get a photograph of Jonas Bjorkman, because Jonas was the star and we walked out together and Stefan happened to be walking alongside me and the young man oblivious turns to Stefan to ask him to take a photograph of him (laughs) and Jonas (laughs) and so you I wish I'd had my own camera to, to, to have a picture of this scene but of course, Stefan said, of course, you know, not, a, I mean, it, it, no, no irony about it at all. As far as Stefan was concerned, he was very happy to take Jonas's picture with the young man. And that, for me, really summed up Stefan.
0: Yeah, I I also remember Sakib interviewing uh, Stefan for the Pete Samper's book I did a couple of years ago. And I found him quite a- he was actually a, a little more opinionated, Richard, than I thought he would be on certain mm. topics when it came to what was going on in the court or how people right. would have done. I had a chapter in the book about how would Sampras have fared against Djokovic, Nadal and Federer. And he had some really interesting opinions about how uh, mm. each of those matchups. And I, I, I found him actually surprisingly engaging in that interview. I don't know whether part of it is that he was long into retirement by then and that, you know, he's looking back on, on his career. It's a different stage of his life, but he was, I I really enjoyed that interview and actually ended up using quite a few quotes from him for the book. Mm. Mm. Yeah, there's
1: really nice yeah, there's a funny quote. Yeah, there's a great quote I remember and you both probably also remember. There used to be this program, ATP Tour Uncovered Weekly before mm-hmm. we had Tennis Channel. It used to be on ESPN once a week. So I used to watch that a lot and I think there's a throwback when Edberg was retiring, they showed that Jim Courier, I think, kind of gave him, you know, like a nice hug, you know, at one of those press uh, post match ceremonies. And then Courier said, as a tribute, on the tour you play for yourself, you're a professional, you don't root for anyone else. But Stefan is the one guy that whose success I enjoy, and that mm-hmm. kind of shows, mm-hmm. like, you know, why this award is named after him. And then even in his partnership with Federer, briefly as his coach for a year and a half or two years. Yeah. brought back a lot of old memories. Uh, so Richard, again, his rivalry with Boris Becker is kind of storied. What do you remember of those times? I'm a huge Becker fan. I didn't enjoy Ed Berg's success, guilty as charged those days. But now I look back and see what a classy guy he was. Uh, how well, fun was were it? two to total opposites. Those two men? Yeah.
2: yeah. Two total opposites in personality. Um, Boris sought the limelight. Uh, I mean, just craved it. Um, whereas Stefan was completely the opposite. And as uh, tennis players and matchups, you will find I don't have the stats in front of me, but I'm pretty certain Becker had a winning record over Stefan. But Stefan won some very important matches against Becker. He, he beat him at Wimbledon and he beat him in the Davis Cup. And it, it, it was interesting that uh, for such, you, you would have expected Becker to be the dominant force when all the chips were on the line and there was a Wimbledon title at stake. And it, it wasn't the case. Stefan won some, some of the important matches against Boris, um, which uh, I found fascinating.
0: Yeah, French just Open back, Semis. To and- Richard's point, Sakif. let me just back up Richard's point. He, he, it's so true because it was 25 10, Richard, career. For a oh, Becker really? over at yeah. okay. times. and yet two out of three Wimbledon finals they met three years in a row, eighty-eight through ninety, and Stepan wins two of the three overboards. He beat him at yeah. a French, heavy. Exactly. and as you so he, the, the wins that he had amounted to a lot. Yeah. I think for someone who came out on such on the short end of a rivalry like that, he was happy that the victories he carved out were really significant.
1: Yeah, he also won the last edition of the Nabisco Masters, the Garden, beating Becker in four.
0: Yeah, so there you go.
1: I think. I mean, yeah. I hate to bring this up, but four one against Becker in big matches, I'll never repeat the stat again. But that's yeah. the truth.
0: Richard, you have done. Uh, I, Richard, you got to understand. Saqib is a great, great Becker fan. He's also a great Lendl fan. So it, it, he speaks with deep emotion on this topic. So you, you, <laughs> yes, you, I know. You, you were reminding him of things he didn't want to remember. That's right. I'm sorry I, about I, I, that. I, yeah, I mean, I, I've grown
1: up slightly in my 40s now, so I'm a bit mature. Uh, you know, <laughs> Back in the day, I was shortchanging Edberg left, right, center, whenever I got a chance. But now I'm doing a podcast. I think he's a class act. All right, Good gentlemen. For let's, you. <laughs> let's come to 1992. So, Steve, I'll go to you first. That has to be one of the all time performances in your coverage of the open or even all the majors. I know with, with the big three era, Record books have been redefined, and there's a golden stage of tennis, what Djokovic did last night against Salkaraz, all factored in. But the 92 U.S. Open, the effort from Edberg, I mean, this has to be spoken at length. I think this is as incredible as it ever was, at least up to that point.
0: Oh, no, even till to to this day. I mean, think about it. He's the defending champion, and he comes back, and he's in the fourth round. He's playing the number 15 seed, Richard Krychek. Who, of course, as Richard well remembers, goes on to win Wimbledon in ninety-six. So Krychek was emerging. He was the number 15 seed as a result. And it's Edberg is down two love in the fifth, actually 15-30 in that third game in danger, maybe going two breaks down. But he comes back and wins at 6-4 in the fifth. That's the first great comeback. Then Yvonne Lendl next. And and he's cruising. He's winning the first two sets at night, three and three. And the next thing you know, he's lost the third. And then he had four match points at the end of the fourth with Lendl down, love 40 on his serve. And, and then an ad and he could not convert. And Lendl wins that set 7-5 and they have to come back the next day. Mm-hmm. And in the fifth, Lendl's up, goes up a break 4-3 and has three chances to go up 5-3. He was very close to winning it before Edberg escapes again. But he's not through because in the semis. He's playing Michael Chang, longest recorded U.S. Open match ever, five hours, 26 minutes. And once again in the fifth set, down a break, uh, love three, and he's down 1540 to go down two breaks, and he gets out of it and then also climbs back from 2-4 and wins the last four games. So three matches in a row, he's come from a breakdown in the fifth against Krychek, Lendl, Chang. And now he's playing Sampras in the final, and he loses the first set to Pete. And Pete, of course, had won the title in 1990. And then they, Edberg came back, won the second. They go to the third. Sampras serves for the third, which you know is going to be a pivotal set. Serves a, a cup, two double faults in that game and gets broken. And eventually Edberg beats him in the tiebreak and cruises 6-2 in the in, in the fourth. He went out to a four-love lead and finished it off. And, uh, you know, it was a, a match that Sampras would later say changed him irrevocably because it, it stung so much to lose that final he didn't want to have that feeling again again and it 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 definitely altered him permanently but for edberg it was an astonishing title defense to beat those three guys in a row from a breakdown in the fifth and come that then come from a set down to beat sampras in the final so uh, i think the comparable only thing i can think that's comparable was alcaraz last year at the open uh, he wins three five setters in a row himself. One, two of the three, he came from a breakdown in the fifth against Chilich and match point down against Sinner, and then finally Tiafo in the semis. He didn't come from a breakdown in the fifth, but he still went five again, and then he he won the the, the title over Casper Root in four sets. That was comparable to to what Edberg did. Not quite as impressive, but darn close. So I I do think. I, I, I do think it's one of the great achievements of, of anybody winning a major in the open year what Edberg did in in ninety two to defend that title. Richard, how do you feel about
2: it? Yes, I, first of all, I should say I wasn't there in ninety two. I was working with the ATP in in uh, in Monte Carlo, so I wasn't physically there. Although I, I saw a lot of the matches, but just looking at those results, what it shows me um, the last three matches. Stefan was playing two of the great returners, two of the great baseliners, which uh, he had to break them down with his serve and volley game. And then in the final, he gets a mirror of of himself. As far as uh, serve and volley tennis is concerned against one of the great proven champions of that style of tennis. And he wins 6-2 in the fourth set. So, I mean... Uh, what more could you ask of someone to deal with the different types of player one has to beat to win a Grand Slam?
0: No, it's so true because you know a huge server in crycheck an attacking player. What a yeah. great Ben Lendl, who who is the quintessential hard court player, and in some ways a transformational player of that era, who sort of set the template for others with that big serve and then the inside out forehand and then that adjust to Chang indefatigable great counter-attacker and go from Chang to Sampras how yeah. much more? how much adjustment can one man make
2: I know, exactly <laughs> no I mean it's just hit me just looking at those uh, opponents that he had to get through
0: yeah.
2: and um, he was underrated um, I, I hope uh, not underappreciated because he uh, apart from anything else, Stefan was just beautiful to watch. I mean, that motion of the serve uh, and, and the the progress to the net for the backhand volley, it was like uh, unreeling un- un- a, a thing of silk. It was just one movement. One whole movement There was no hitch, no stop, nothing. It began with the serve, and it followed into the net, and the backhand volley was put away, and that was the end of that point in about point <laughs> one of a second. Yeah. And it it was just breathtaking to watch. It was beautiful. It was, hey, it
0: was. And and he, I think Richard mentioned the backhand volley. To me, you know, you have, you look at his backhand volley, probably the best back backhand volley we've ever seen. Tony Roach is right up there with him, and yeah. Ken. Well, not far behind, but you can't say anybody had a better backhand volley than than Berg, and yet we shouldn't diminish what the forehand volley was. He just was fantastic up in the forecourt. He was all around yeah. the best volleyer in tennis of, of his time and one of the great volleyers of all time.
2: Because the forehand off the ground was his weakness. Yes. Um, and the funny thing was, I'm pretty sure, having watched him so much, that uh, the less time he had to think about it, the better. Uh, if he had time with his forehand off the ground, it could go anywhere. But if if it came back at him really fast and he didn't have any time to think about it, it was fine. Yeah. <laughs> so there was a psychological aspect to that forehand weakness that Stefan had. That that was the only problem with this game. The rest was
0: just classic. Absolutely right, and that then in turn. Lendl used to talk about how well, Richard, that, that Stefan would cover up the forehand in the sense of he'd be trying to keep peppering away to that side. And suddenly, Edberg's coming in from almost on, on the baseline. He suddenly shortens his backswing, and he's in a down-the-line forehand approaches and on top of you again. So he wouldn't let you trap him uh, at the baseline for too long and expose that forehand. He was very good at that.
2: You know, the interesting thing, we were talking about uh, Tony Pickard not doing much with, with, with Stefan's game because the game was there. It was the mental aspect. But go back to his early coach, the, the, again, the seldom talked about, Percy Rosberg. Yes. Who found himself looking after a young 12-year-old called Bjorn Borg and had a look at him and said, yeah, that backhand's very good. Keep, keep, that, keep that two-handed backhand. And then a couple of years later, he had a 12-year-old called Stefan Edberg, and he had a look at his two-handed backhand, and he said, you know, you could do better than that. Go to a (laughs) one-hander. I mean, you want coaching? Yeah. Uh, I I mean, Percy deserved, you know, an award. Uh, I mean, that because he he nursed two of the great backhands. Uh, One was a double-hander, and the other was a single-hander.
0: That's interesting because, of course – Pete Fischer, uh, uh, this is what happened with Pete Sampras too. As you know, he had a one-hand back, and the, and uh, he had a, he, he had the two-hander initially. And Chang actually told me when I did the book, what it was a great two-hander when he was thirteen, fourteen. And they but they wanted to make him the, a great serve and volley or an attacking player, so they switched to the one-hander too. So Edberg and Sampras have an awful lot in common.
2: Yeah, that's true, and it, it just shows you what a great coach can do. Yeah, um, and and have a, a an amazing effect on a player, but that for Percy Rosberg was was quite a, a double call <laughs> with Polk yeah. and Edberg. Yeah, <laughs> he got it right. He sure did.
1: A lot of food for thought, gentlemen. So uh, I have a follow up here, Richard. You both actually said he has one of the arguably the greatest backhand volley in the Open era. Uh, what seldom gets talked about is how quick he was to the net behind his serve. So Richard. Same question for you, Steve. Richard, you can go first. You've seen many guys do Servant Volley, you know, even the great Aussies like Hode, Lever, you name it, and then yeah. all the way to the Beckers, Edbergs, Pat Cash, Rafter. Where would you rank Edberg's quickness? I know it's all memory. How quick oh, was getting he getting to the his net? He's, yeah.
2: he's, he's up there because, as I said, it, it was one motion. The, the whole thing was just a whoosh. The, the, the serve, and he was at the net for the backhand volley or the forehand volley um, before you could blink. And um, he, he was as quick as anybody. I mean, John Newcomb was, was pretty good. And uh, talking about confidence, uh, a quote I always remember from Nuke uh, saying, if I hit my forehand volley um, the way I want to, it doesn't matter where my opponent is because he's not going to get it back. Um, which is a great show of self-confidence. He didn't have to look to see where the opponent was, because if he got that ball in the middle of the strings on the forehand volley, the point was over. Um, I don't think Stefan had quite that kind of self-confidence, but he certainly, at the net, he, he was uh, he was fantastic.
0: He was, and he the other thing about it, Sakeb, was that he, would, he didn't have a big serve. So you think of, you know, a Sampras or a Newcomb and some of the bigger Mm -hmm. servers, it's harder for them to get in tight for the first volley. They did it beautifully. But Mm -hmm. in Edberg's case, he basically kicked it. It was a heavy spin. It gave him plenty of time to blanket the net. And Mm -hmm. then he was all over you up there and you had to hit a perfect return and stop him uh, up at the net. So I think that was another part of the secret was the package, the way he the way he served and how it enabled him to get in so fast.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So we're in agreement. So Steve, let's go back to the Chang match. I remember a few days before that match, Becker and Lendl had produced the longest match in the open with five hour, one minutes. And then three, four days later, these guys break that record of five hour, 26 minutes. So that match had a lot of back and forth. And where would you rank, rank that in the great matches you've seen at the open, Edberg and Chang? A lot of contrast at play, a lot of service breaks, a lot of leads being exchanged, I remember. Uh, but your memory, I think, I'm going to rely on that. Where do you place that match in well, the epic matches high. you've seen?
0: Yeah, pretty high because you, the sets, you know, it, the first three sets are all tiebreaker tiebreak one seven five, so a couple of tiebreakers. The fourth seven five, you know, so nothing was shorter than seven five, and then the fifth goes six four, and they all were so competitive. You had the great contrast: Edberg a- a- approaching a lot, Michael trying to pass, and the quality was really. Very high on a, quite a hot day, too. Uh, I put it up there. Now, it wasn't a final, but still, it, it's certainly one of the really uh, uh, great semifinals I've seen out, out of the Open, no doubt about it.
2: Yes, I, I, as I said, I, I wasn't there, but from what I remember, it was certainly an extraordinary battle uh, of contrasting styles yeah. and uh, yeah. uh, just a, a very memorable match. Obviously, it will live in the memory for a whole lot of reasons.
0: Yeah, and heartbreaking for Chang, obviously, because you know mm-hmm. he was close in that fifth. But it was just again another example of Edberg Edberg's composure under pressure. He, I mean, and time and again, we saw it. his temperament was just it, mm-hmm. it was wonderful because un, underneath that, Richard, he obviously he did he was he was a fierce competitor, but oh, but yeah. but he would not lose his cool, and he would no. he did. He believed in himself enough. You're right in the comparison with Newcomb. I agree with you, Rich, because Newcomb was extraordinarily confident. There were few like him. But Stefan had that quiet inner belief. Well,
2: you have to. I mean, he won too much for, for him not to have had it. <laughs> you know, you can't, you yeah. can't uh, go on winning Grand Slam titles and yeah. the Masters and the whole thing. He was a winner, uh, just a very extraordinary winner, because as like I say, he, he his ego... Did not dominate his personality at all, yeah. which is not often the case with winners.
1: Yeah, especially in a one-on-one sport, you look for alpha personalities. So you seldom come across a guy who's okay, you know, mm. to not take himself that seriously. While all the other guys, like Becker, Agassi, all the, you know, yeah. all the superstars, they have an edge, and and we like them for their edge. It's not like yep. you know they they are not you know followed and uh, recognized for that edge. So. Let's do a slight digression since I have you here, both of you.
2: I've got to warn you that I, I'm I'm got a realtor coming in about five minutes, so okay. I, I so, have five minutes.
1: All right, okay. so let's wrap it up then. Uh, the The tournament calendar used to be a lot, a lot different back then because a lot of times you go to the ATP page of a certain player, you see players playing a tournament in Dallas, then they go sometime to Japan, sometimes they come back Monte Carlo, then they go to Forest Hills. Uh, tennis has changed a lot. So what do you remember with the travel? I mean, right now everybody complains about clay after Wimbledon, but I try to tell them, look at the calendar in the 80s and early 90s. It's much better now. There used to be a lot of chaos. And I don't know, did players complain about that? How have we arrived at this at this place? Richard, you can go first and then I can wrap it up with Steve. Well, I
2: think, you know, I, I think the ATP is better governed now and, and, and people have uh, listened to the players uh, because the travel was unbelievable. I mean, uh, Steve did enough of it. I probably did even more. And you were on on a plane. I mean, I remember um, leaving Tokyo with Rod Laver, who just won the title, and we just caught the plane uh, to fly to um, L.A. And uh, Rocket, uh, as he could, he had that ability to to curl up and go to sleep. He was asleep before the plane took off. And so <laughs> he, he he got over part of the jet lag problem, but we were always fighting jet lag. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I remember watching a uh, uh, everybody was was, was playing um, uh, what's that game? Everybody played uh, not blackjack, but, uh, but backgammon. Yeah, backgammon. Yeah, uh, thank you, backgammon. There was a whole, the, the tour was playing backgammon, and we were we were in LA. And um, a couple of players, Chang and someone, uh, maybe El Shafi, um, were playing in the clubhouse where we were. I think it was in San Francisco. And um, the next week, I walk into the clubhouse in Rome and the two were <laughs> playing this backgammon game. And we'd flown around the world. And the game didn't seem to have been interrupted. <laughs> they were still <laughs> playing it, <laughs> and <laughs> it, it, we just took it in our stride. You you were in another place. Oh, okay. Um, but it, well, it the the travel was unbelievable.
0: In turn, I think uh, Sakib, the players just they played more. They were able. maybe the game wasn't. As, it's clearly a di- different level of physical exertion now. Not that yeah. they. That and but also Richard remembers that a lot of serving and volleying quicker points. There's a lot of factors, but I think the guys couldn't possibly play as many tournaments as Labor and Roswell and Newcomb and those guys did routinely. So no. uh, that's another factor in 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 the whole scheduling dilemma.
1: And now absolutely, the stars don't travel. I'm sure, Steve. When is the last time you and Federer and Djokovic were in the same flight? Doesn't happen anymore, right?
0: <laughs> oh no, no, definitely not. <laughs>
1: all right so i think we covered quite a lot here got a lot of good anecdotes any parting thoughts and edberg how do you remember his legacy one minute each and we can wrap it up steve you can go first and richard you can well, have a last thought
0: one of the most dignified champions it's it's so as you said earlier it's so fitting that the atp would have a sportsmanship award named after him who, who could be more deserving of that conducted himself impeccably through all his years as a as a, a professional and very worthy of winning two Wimbledons, two Australians, two US Opens and I just remember I thought he did the game proud with the way he the way he conducted himself in the public arena
2: Stephen Edberg was gracious and graceful and he was a wonderful ambassador for tennis
1: All Right, That's a perfect way to end this I enjoyed this hour thoroughly, <laughs> hopefully the listeners will too uh, we'll try to get you both back together on another player before another major. Hopefully we can do this. Thank you both. Thank okay,
2: you. Frank. Thank you. That was fun. Steve, I will see you in Manhattan or the Flushing Meadow anyway.